today's Palm Sunday, as Chris pointed out in red, thank you, which begins the, marks the beginning of Holy Week. And all over the world, the church will be celebrating Holy Week in all kinds of ways, some with Passover meals and foot washing ceremonies, um, some with fasting and silence, some with meditations on the stations of the cross or changing of um, the colors of the church, the liturgical vestments from purple to red. Uh, for many others, Easter is just a great chance to cease from working for a bit and enjoy time with friends and family, enjoy the summer that wasn't. Um, but as we, as we come towards the conclusion of our series we've been doing on the Apostles' Creed, it seems like we've had this nice convergence point. So we've been walking, uh, working through the Apostles' Creed and uh, we've found ourselves this morning pondering the line, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And then next week, I believe in the resurrection of the body. So how about that, eh? Um, how about that for timing? Aren't we clever? No, isn't God clever? It's just interesting, isn't it, that um, even though our, as a church we haven't necessarily followed the liturgical calendar, we somehow get caught up in it along the way. Um, so I want to just begin by, by reading the story of Palm Sunday from chapter 12 of John's Gospel. As, as just as some sections as well from chapter 13. So, so before I do that, I'll just pray. So Holy Spirit, we just welcome you here. We welcome you to speak to us again today, to, to remind us of who we are in you, Lord. Would you be with us, Lord, as we consecrate this moment in time to listen and to ponder and to open our hearts to you? Thank you, Lord. Amen. So this is John 12, starting from verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now, the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. Many people, because that they had heard he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. And then skipping ahead to chapter 13, verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. 
After that, he poured water into a, ba a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I've done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Peter, Jesus replied, Where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly I tell you, before the rooster crows, you'll disown me three times. So this, this passage is probably pretty well known to lots of us. And as we find ourselves at the beginning of Holy Week, uh, pondering our belief in that phrase, the forgiveness of sins, I think it's worth pausing even to consider the way God brings these things together for us. And whether he's maybe wanting to remind us or what he's wanting to remind us of in that. How we belong to him. And we might also like to pause and even consider the meaning of Jesus' words to Peter. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. I brought in a, a picture. We're going old school. No, no PowerPoint today, but some, some paintings. I think that's Peter. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. How do these words strike you? How would it feel to have Jesus, the, the Lord and creator of the universe, stoop down to wash your feet? I imagine most of us probably empathize with Peter at this point, that response, you know. Because God's love is so scandalous and shocking. 
sort of exposes our strange mix of, of pride and shame, the way they both live together. It tends to crack us right open and we know that there's nothing really worthy within us of God's attention or affection. Deep down we know that we are as fickle as the crowd on Palm Sunday who cried out Hosanna. We're as fickle as Peter who, you know, said that he would lay down his life for Jesus and then denied him three times a few hours later. Yet, I think as David, the psalmist, reflected in Psalm 18 verse 35, you know, despite our frailty, God stoops down to make us great. Or as the CSB translation puts it, his humility exalts me. And I think this is really beautifully captured in this, this painting by Sigakoda. His humility exalts me. So to say in the creed, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, I think is to agree with Jesus. It means to say, yes, Lord, I, I need you to wash me. I need you to wash me clean and to let him do that. Church historian Ben Myers notes that the, the confession of forgiveness of sins was relatively late addition to the creed. It wasn't, it wasn't in the earliest creeds. The earliest baptismal formula that people would say as they were getting baptized were simply that they believed in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church, and the resurrection of the flesh. But a big debate emerged in the 4th century of the church around this question of sin and forgiveness and belonging to the church. So Christians in those days were living in a strange time where they were sometimes allowed to practice their religion and other times they were persecuted. And so they were sort of being, sort of getting whiplash going from different emperor to different emperor, some who tolerated, some who persecuted. And in 303, the emperor Diocletian ordered you know, after a period of, of stability for the church, Diocletian ordered that the church, all church buildings be confiscated, um, all property of Christians seized, all their books burned, all their churches destroyed, all Christian leaders to be imprisoned. And only those who made the sacrifices to the Roman gods were to be released from prison. Some, at that time, some Christian leaders held their faith and were martyred. But many, many more didn't. Many, many more, uh, including many clergy, came out and, and made the sacrifices and renounced their faith in public. But things returned back to normal again, and, and they were allowed to practice religion. And that led to a bit of a crisis in the church. You can imagine what to do with these people who are coming back into the church now. These people who had recanted their faith publicly when other people had lost eyes and had friends who had died. How do you form a community in, in the context of that? So the trouble was, was understanding, um, could these people be accepted back into the faith? Or did they need to get baptized again? You know, did, did there have to be some kind of new initiation ceremony? Or were they, were they to be permanently excluded from the community? These were big questions that gripped the early church at this time. And they brought, I guess, the bigger question of what the Christian identity is into sharp focus. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? And what do you do if you've strayed from the path? 
is Christian community only for the pure? Is it a holy huddle just for the people who don't make mistakes? Or can struggling, weak, um, uncertain souls find their place in the Christian community as well? So this crisis in the 4th century eventually led to the clear answers that we have in our creed to these questions. They became embedded in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. So Christian teachers, people like St. Augustine and others, made it their life's work to, to argue from Scripture that the Church includes everybody who confesses Jesus as Lord and receives baptism. And failures in, in discipleship along the way, even dramatic ones, do not exclude a person from God's grace. Or in the words of the jazz poet, Gil Scott Heron, no matter how far wrong you've gone, you can always turn around. There's no need to be baptized over and over again. We only need to be baptized once. If we had to be baptized over and over again, it would imply that, that, uh, that forgiveness was inefficient in the first time. The forgiveness of sins has taken place once and for all in Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. That's why we make a big deal about Easter. And that brings to mind a, a story I read about an old retired minister who was sitting in an airport departure lounge waiting, waiting for a, his flight, having a cup of coffee. And a, a zealous young uh, Christian came up to him and rather abruptly interrupted him and said, Excuse me, sir, are you saved? When were you saved? Do you know you're saved? Can you tell me when you got saved? And the, the minister, kind of a bit caught off guard, scratched his head for a moment and then said, well, I got saved 2,000 years ago. <laughs> it's, I only found out about it recently. <laughs> and he finished his coffee and hopped on his plane. So that story might not be true. It's a good story, though. <laughs> it highlights two dimensions of, of what it means to be saved or what, what theologians refer to as the objective um, and the subjective dimensions of salvation. So the, the young evangelist was interested in the subjective dimension of forgiveness of salvation. That is, he was interested in the moment when this um, helpless person having a coffee <laughs> was, had made their decision to surrender. When did you make that decision? When did Jesus wash you clean? Whereas the, the retired minister's mind went to the objective dimension of salvation. It wasn't so much when he made the decision, but it was the historical facts of the crucifixion, of the resurrection, of what Jesus has achieved. That's when sins were forgiven. That's when new creation was launched into the world. But the thing is, they're both right. Both the airport evangelist and the retired minister were correct in their assumptions, despite emphasizing different aspects of salvation. So as well as having this objective and subjective dimension, we can also conceive of the forgiveness of sins in three tenses. Bear with me. We can be thinking about forgiveness of sins in the past. We can think about forgiveness of sins in the present and in the future. So we can, uh, yeah, we can be confident in all three dimensions there. Uh, we can be confident that we've been forgiven and reconciled to God. That's done. Full stop. We can draw a line under that. And at the same time, in the present tense, we know that we are invited to seek forgiveness. We're constantly being invited to seek forgiveness and reconciliation with God right now. At every moment, our heart is in a constant state of turning to God. 
And yet, in another very real sense, we live in an anticipation of a time when we will experience full reconciliation with God, when forgiveness will be made real and tangible in a way that, that we might not experience just yet. So our experience of the forgiveness of sin straddles these three dimensions of time. No wonder we're so strange as Christians. Um, uh, so a brief, a brief sketch of, of Scripture really shows this three-part expression of salvation and forgiveness. So, for example, in the letter to the Ephesians, Paul writes about how God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So that choice was made before the creation of the world. Or in the book of Revelation, similarly, John describes Jesus as the lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. So, so uh, yeah, our calling, our cleansing, our redemption goes right back to the foundation of God's creation. It goes right back to the heart of God's sovereign will that we would be, that we would be recipients of his grace. And yet we also see that... Um, that forgiveness and salvation are a process in time. So they begin with our willing acceptance of God's grace. So Luke records uh, God's spirit moving powerfully amongst the early Christians. And he notes that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved, emphasizing the present and ongoing nature of salvation. So the Lord's adding daily the number of people being saved. So being saved is something that happens in time for each of us. And similarly, Paul instructed the Philippians to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who's at work in you, both to will and work for his good pleasure. So our salvation is also something that we're working out with fear and trembling. And Peter also instructed the believers to essentially become who they are in Christ. Writing, do not conform to the evil desires that you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. So in this sense, uh, it's clear that we, we need to work forgiveness out. It's something that happens in our life. It's something that we take an active role in. And finally, um, our, our part in salvation and forgiveness clearly belongs to the not yet category of things, the, the category of life which awaits a future point, a culmination, a completion of things. And that's why Peter again encouraged the church to be patient in waiting saying, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. A lot of Bible there, sorry, but um, just doing my footnotes. Um, so, the, yeah, the full expression of, of, of the forgiveness of sins is both, yeah, it's something that's both for the living and the dead, and it takes place at the return of Jesus. That's when forgiveness of sins kind of blooms, if you like, when he establishes his kingdom and when he unveils new creation. You might have noticed that I'm talking a little bit interchangeably about forgiveness and salvation, like isn't this supposed to be one or the other, but I think the, the reason I'm doing that, well it's intentional, I'm, I'm, salvation and forgiveness are, um, are a part of a rich um, set of words and metaphors that are used in the Bible to to describe God's work. So, so um, yeah, the Bible uses all of these different words and metaphors to describe salvation, like redemption, reconciliation, rescue, renewal, cleansing, justification, adoption, 
pacification, eternal life. It depends which author you're reading. They're all kind of talking about the same thing. So when we talk about forgiveness of sins, we're talking about we're talking about this big thing. Scholars like Michael Bird suggest the Apostles' Creed regards the phrase the forgiveness of sins as a dense term encompassing the whole package of salvation. And that seems to align with the Gospels where Jesus is preaching about the kingdom of God and the fulfillment of John the Baptist's work, which was to preach the message of the repentance um, and forgiveness of sins. So I think too often we've reduced forgiveness of sins down to this little thing. We've, we've boiled the Christian story and, the, and the, 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 the good news down to, to too small a thing. Um, we think of the forgiveness of sins as a kind of um, ticket to the afterlife. So we don't go to hell, we'll go to heaven if we have this thing called the forgiveness of sins. And as long as we've got that, we'll be okay. And it's, it's certainly not less than that, but it's so much more than that. In, in the Bible, sin is more than a description of our personal failings. It's more than a description of our mistakes. Sin is described in the Bible as this kind of great shadowy power that's behind everything, this thing which seduces, this thing which corrupts and destroys everything within us and around us. From the natural world to, to social and political and economic systems, to the deepest parts of our own minds and hearts. So salvation expressed as the forgiveness of sins means deliverance from enemies. It means deliverance from physical danger, powers, illness, impurity, injustice, social exclusion, false accusation, shame, even death itself. So when we confess, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, we're stating our firm confidence in Jesus' achievements. His faithfulness is deeper than our faithlessness. When we confess, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, we state that those who are spiritually strong, those who kept the faith back then in the 4th century, even unto death, and the spiritually weak, those who crumbled under pressure, are both sustained by God's grace, by his forgiving grace. So we rely on, on Jesus' cleansing, on this washing, all of us, at the point of our worst failures and at the point of our best successes. Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. That's not just for, for us when we're feeling down. His washing is for all of us, all the time.